You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Trowers and Hamlins podcast. My name is Chris Plumley and I'm a partner in our real estate team. I focus on public sector projects, so I'm delighted today to have Deborah Cadden with me, who is the Chief Executive of the West Midlands Combined Authority. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Chris. Hi. And we've got about 20 minutes today to talk through anything you like, really, but I thought we could focus on a couple of key things which I know is particularly important to you and close to your heart. So let's talk about the role that the um, public sector play and the Combined Authority. Public sector has always played an important role in placemaking, in urban renewal, and in inclusive growth. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the success the combined authorities had in that space? So I think the first thing to to say is the combined authority uh, is actually an organisation that's made up of the seven metropolitan councils of the West Midlands. So we have a a board uh, that's chaired by the mayor, Andy Street. So everything that we do is done with and through local government. And the areas that we have specific responsibility for are public transport, housing, uh, enablement, not delivery, and I'll talk a little bit more about what that means, and skills provision. And of course, we do, we do other things as well. So, you know, part of the challenge we were given by central government is to try and close the productivity gap in the West Midlands. And what that means is to try and support more people into economic activity, into jobs essentially, so that they don't take out of the system through unemployment benefit and um, universal credit. So, so we work really hard to support those people that are furthest away from the labour market through probably ill health or mental health to support them to get back into work and and indeed get into work in the first place. And of course, we've got a challenge around the the numbers of young people that are unemployed in the region as well. So so although we do housing, transport and skills, actually we, we work across all of those to ensure that as many residents as possible are given the opportunity to contribute to economic growth. So our role in kind of placemaking, I think, is is quite significant. So uh, one of the things that I'm most proud of is our ability to to bring places that have been left dormant for generations back into life. And we've been able to do that through remediating brownfield land, um, predominantly in the black country. So there are sites that literally have, have been left dormant for a long, long time. Uh, where we're able to intervene where the market has has failed. And we've seen some brilliant examples and we've had some excellent results where we've levelled the market. So developers are now more prepared to come and invest in those areas because all that cost of remediation has been taken out of the equation. And and you could say that is a really good use of public funding. And I know from the work we've done with you, are that element of proper regeneration, of rebalancing yeah. the market, of taking away um, the elements of market failure and yeah. having that proper genuine intervention mm-hmm. has been incredibly successful. Absolutely. And, we, and we're really proud of that. And, but it, it can't just be about remediating land. You know, we've, we've got to be quite thoughtful about that. There's no, there's, there's no point, you know, developing on a site that's not connected. So we've been really thoughtful about um, extending the public transport network. Uh, we're thinking about the 5G network and the, the kind of 
connectivity through new technology that we need to do as well. And we're also being very thoughtful about, you know, if we're growing communities, are we also trying to link them to job opportunities as well? So what's the skills provision? in that particular area. That's, it's always worth remembering, isn't it, that you know, when we talk about regeneration, it's easy to just think of the bricks and mortar, mm. but there's no point in the bricks and mortar if the people aren't there to enjoy it and they benefit from it and so on. And, and I think that idea of taking those sites, which have, as you say, lain dormant mm. for years, and one we've just done recently uh, in, in the black country, where it's been an absolute eyesore mm. um, and people have walked around it because otherwise it doesn't have its viability as a mm-hmm. site on itself. But to be able to take those sites and turn them back into mm. public use has been a, a, a fantastic um, opportunity. I suppose that ties into the inclusive, inclusive growth agenda. I know that's something particularly close to your heart. Um, what does that mean to you? So, so I've, I've developed this, this kind of strap line, which, which, I, which I'm sure you've heard me uh, talk about before, and I know many of your listeners will have heard me say this. But, but my view is that you know, if the residents of this region can't benefit from the growth and we call, we, we we talk about it in terms of you know if they can't touch taste and feel the growth that we're generating then you kind of have to question why why we're kind of doing this and you know and, and we we truly believe that that you can't have strong vibrant communities without strong vibrant economies and vice versa they are inextricably linked you can't have one without the other so for us we're very thoughtful about what we do in order to grow economies, but how we do it and who we involve as well. So, you know, there was a, there was a terrible kind of example last year where there was a community that were constantly using food banks, you know, and they're literally in the shadow of Snow Hill where we've, li- where we've invested billions, you know. And that can't be right in terms of trying to generate cohesive communities. You can't invest in in an area and build bright, shiny buildings and have great connectivity when, it, you know, less than three miles away, you've got places where people have been employed for generations and, you know, living in, in poverty and the disadvantage that they experience as children will probably stay with them throughout their education career. So that doesn't lend itself to a region that's vibrant and can take its place on the world stage, which is what our aspiration is yeah. for the West Midlands. So we have to be really thoughtful about that. So if, if we invest in one place, you can't ignore the impact or the lack of impact it might have on another place and on a particular community. So inclusive growth for me is, is around making sure that everything we do benefits not just growing our businesses and sectors, which of course is why one of the main reasons why we're here, we also have to ensure that people benefit from that. And it could be, as we were talking about previously, that where we build uh, housing or we enable houses to be built, we make sure that they're connected. You know, where we attract businesses into the region, we make sure that there is social value in that deal that we've struck, where they are committed to both investing in skilling up local people, but also uh, recruiting local people uh, as part of their workforce. So there are things that we can be quite um, uh, interventionist around to ensure that local people feel that they are really benefiting from the growth that we're, we're generating as a region. That element of kind of social capital, I suppose, is something that we seeing more and more it's, it's interesting when we're trying to put um financial packages together or put development deals together when we're looking at what the outputs are too often those outputs are 
purely financial. And I think it's an, it's an interesting space when, when we're acting on the public sector side of things that sometimes the financial outputs or the, the, the direct return isn't what we're after at all. It's making sure that it has a proper beneficial impact. And you know what, what I would say, Chris, is, you know, we've, we've been having some really interesting conversations with some, some quite significant players in the region around social value and their commitment to investing both in communities and into skills provision. And we've been a little bit fierce about it in in kind of saying, if you want to come and invest here, this is what it means and this is what we expect from you. And what I would say is very few have walked away from the table. You know, and it, it kind of feels to me like people are willing and happy to have that conversation and make that commitment. Um, you know, and, and even around things like, you know, we, we encourage people to sign up to the inclusivity pledge that we've got, the leadership pledge that we've got, because we truly believe, and we know this to be true, that if you have a diverse workforce, that does impact positively on your bottom line. You know, a, a better diverse workforce means a better response that you can give to whatever services or products that you deliver for your communities. Uh, we, we found that in, in our own research in, in the good growth um, mm. stuff and the prosperity pieces that we've been doing around the country. It, it almost sounds like a cliche now, but for years we've, you know, we've all tripped up to various conferences and heard people talk about um, better collaboration and need for working together properly. And then the systems that we put in place to, to actually work together sometimes don't lend themselves to that. But increasingly we're seeing more and more the good developers are happy to engage in that kind of yeah. uh, space in that collaborative way. I mean, you, you touched on a couple of things there. You mentioned 5G, obviously the Midlands is the test bed for that. Yeah. Everyone's very excited about that. You've had the new single commissioning framework, which people are uh, uh, tying into. And, you know, we've got some new housing models that we're working on with you. You must be really proud of the legacy so far. Well, I... It, and I deliberately it, say so far. Yeah, is it a legacy? I, th- I think it's a, a whole series of foundations that we've, we've put in place. Um, I still think there is a lot to do. And, it, and, and we've only been up and running for three years. And you could argue the first year was very much putting um, the right people in place to do and the right, the right budgets in place to do the work. So I'm hugely proud of what the combined authority has achieved in what is quite um, a small amount of time. And, and we were talking to some of our colleagues from Manchester who have been up and running for almost 10 years now, you know, and, and they, they're really envious of what we've been able to deliver and achieve in, you know, in three years. And they kind of referred to us as going from zero to hero because if you look at the money we've captured from central government around the Devo deals and, you, you know, it's kind of, I think it's 3.6 billion that we've been able to liberate from government which is quite phenomenal, really. So when people say to me, well, we don't understand the point of the combined authority, my response is, well, that's 3.6 billion reasons why you should actually care about what we've done. So I think we have, we've been a bit disruptive on a whole range of fronts because we've been able to. Hopefully people will see what we've done so far as being positively disruptive. So the way in which we've intervened in the, the housing market, the way in which we've completely remodelled the way in which we are skilling up our workforce and working in a, a different, more profound way, both with businesses and skills providers to make sure that the skills we provide are relevant and needed to grow the economy. Um, the way in which we are being very 
thoughtful about the public transport routes and connectivity that we're putting and being very bold in saying that certainly around HS2, which we're absolutely delighted about, you know, we've made this commitment that nobody in the region will be more than 45 minutes away from one of those two hubs by public transport, which is quite a fun, you know, it's bold. And it's ambitious, but I am absolutely confident we will deliver that. I know from our own work on, on HST and uh, the work we're doing with UGC over at uh, mm. Solihull, the region's still attracting tremendous amounts of investment. And we know from hearing you and other colleagues on, on a number of occasions talk about that through the Westminster Forum for Growth and so on, the region's still attracting a lot of investment, despite you know the challenges in the market mm. and so on. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the West Midlands is, is driving that uh, investment forward? It's kind of a perfect storm or perfect mix. I don't, I don't know which analogy you use, but, you know, we've got HS2 and, and I am hugely relieved that government has now committed to that. Um, and if you look at, at some of the conscious decisions some of our large employers have made to move out of London to Birmingham, part of the reason for that was on, on the promise of High Speed 2. So HS2, Deutsche Bank, etc. Um, I think uh, the fact that we have got one of the youngest and most diverse populations outside London. So over 30% of our population is under 25, which I think is a phenomenal opportunity for us. We've got brilliant academic institutions and we've got 56 graduates each year, many of whom, and I can't remember the exact percentage, but many of whom choose to say in this region once they graduate, which is a brilliant kind of intellectual property, if you like, that we've got in this region as well. And the fact that government are devolving a lot of both money and powers to allow us to make some of the decisions we need to make. So I think it's it's a whole combination of factors, but the West Midlands is certainly being seen as by global investors as being quite hot. Okay. But the challenge for us is to remain on the crest of that wave. Well, I suppose that's the next. That's the next question. What it, you know, the, it's a really positive story in the Midlands, and and you know we we have to be careful not to um, just focus on the positives. What frustrates you? I think what frustrates me is people not, or organisations, not being prepared to work collectively to one aim. So you know we've got the most amazing opportunities over the next five to ten years. We've got City of Culture, we've got the Commonwealth Games, we've got HS2, we've got the most amazing opportunities around some of the sectors that are growing. So one of the things we haven't spoken about is the industrial strategy. We were the first region to develop an industrial strategy in partnership with government, where we've identified the key growth sectors, and uh, and, I can, and I can read those out for you. So it's advanced manufacturing, life sciences, end-to-end professional services of which you are part, digital creative, construction, logistics, transport technology and low carbon technology. And those are the sectors that we know will grow and benefit not just UK PLC, but we believe um, many of those have got global reach as well. So it's that narrative and that ambition and that confidence that the whole of the, the, the region should be embracing and working towards. So my frustration is that, you know, sometimes pe- people are unwilling to kind of see that as a, a kind of joint, a joint venture and see it as a, this kind of system of growth that we should be generating. I think that's my frustration. And government, 
you know, is it is it true devolution or is it delegation? And and part of my frustration sometimes is that government can't quite always just devolve the kind of powers and flexibilities that we need. So it's kind of giving us stuff, but giving us stuff with constraints. And, and that is a bit of a frustration because I know that with more money, with more powers and more flexibilities, we could be far more innovative and creative on doing some of the things we want to do. I suppose the next question then is, you know, what's next? Because there's so many things underway and it feels in the, in the region that it's definitely started, you know, and, and the impact of the combined authority, the impact of all of the councils working together, the new elements of grant funding, the new bits of infrastructure that are coming in, it's started. It really has. And you could feel the energy in the city reflecting in that. So what's next? We haven't mentioned two things that we probably need to. One is Brexit and the impact of that. And the second thing is, is, is the thing that's, uh, that we've just spoken to before we started this podcast, which is coronavirus and the potential impact on that. Now, um, the mayor uh, and the combined authority, you know, we've been really thoughtful about that. Um, So I was responsible for an economic development agency in the last recession in 2008. And and it kind of feels that we're on the cusp of a bit of of a problem, really. So we need to be really thoughtful about how we ensure the resilience that we're seeing in the economy is maintained. And to do that, you know, we need to understand what are the tipping points, what are the big challenges. So conversations at the moment around um, if people have to self-isolate, what does that mean in terms of pay, etc, etc? What does it mean in terms of supply chains? What does it mean in terms of liquidity? So if we want to maintain that global edge we've got in some of these these sectors, like automotive, like um, digital and creative, like low carbon technology, you know, how can we protect and preserve some of those businesses that are really growing at a fast rate of knots at the moment. You know, how do we ensure that the construction that we've got in place continues to happen if we've got workforces that are, you know, being challenged through people self-isolating or indeed, God forbid, you know, catching the virus. So we're starting to pull together a group to look at that so so we can be a little bit uh, ahead of the curve and to say, look, we understand what the implications might be. So how can we put mitigation in place to stop it, you know, having such a profound impact? That sort of positive planning um, and not being reactive. I suppose some, some people might think local government's not the space for that, but actually it just shows again and again and again, actually, that's what the public sector is brilliant at. Oh, absolutely phenomenal. And, um, you know, I've, I've worked in local government beforehand and uh, it will just continue to deliver the services it needs to protect and support uh, communities and to create conditions for businesses to kind of continue to do what they, they need to do. It is a quite a phenomenal institution of which I'm hugely fond. Um, but actually, I'm, I'm hugely confident that it will respond. Yeah. So, But if we leave kind of the impact of Brexit and some of the difficult trading challenges that we may have in the future, and this may be a future podcast, and the, the threat of coronavirus to one side, what's next? I think we have to continue to build communities. So the demand for housing isn't going away. We have to be thoughtful about what that housing looks and feels like. I think we have to continue to develop and deliver an integrated public transport system because, again, another big elephant in the room is climate change and our response to that. 
We have to get people out of cars. We have to get people using public transport. We have to address the air quality challenges we've got in the city and the region. And then there's that issue about making sure that local people are still in a position to take advantage of the opportunities that we're, we're delivering as well. So that's about skilling people up to do their jobs. And that, uh, that element of um, making that positive change, making a difference, that's why I suppose we, we all get into the public sector in the yeah, first absolutely. place, isn't it? So yeah. what a great ending point for us in today's podcast. It would be lovely to, to see you again for a part two, part three and part four as we continue this journey. Um, thanks ever so much for coming in today. As always, a pleasure to see you. Deborah Cadman, thanks ever so much for coming in again. It's my absolute pleasure, Chris. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.